At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With the title, You're in Town, theater goers might not expect to consider themes such as capitalism, politics, and corporate greed. Yet the show does just that, with hilarious comedy and memorable songs. Freddie Ashley the artistic director of Actors Express, is directing a new production of You're in Town that also features student actors from Oglethorpe University. We'll hear more about the musical later this hour. Plus, our series Speaking of Comedy today features Atlantan Ty Colgate. First... Acclaimed artist Naji Dorsey uses mixed-media collage and digital-media collage images that tell compelling stories of black life in the Deep South. He is CEO and founder of the arts organization Black Art in America, or BIA. Mr. Dorsey's works have been featured in exhibitions at museums throughout the country, and his latest show, Leaving Mississippi, Reflections on Heroes and Folklore, is on view through February 11th at the Black Art in America Gallery. Najee Dorsey joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm honored to be here. My pleasure. Let's start with a bit about your story, beginning in art college to your successful career as a full-time artist and becoming CEO and founder of an arts organization. How did you get from there to here? Well, I must I must first start by saying that I'm actually, I'm an art school dropout. You know, I, I went to two classes and just the the structure and the formality of school just wasn't necessarily for me at that time. But thankfully, I ran into a number of individuals, particularly in my younger adult years, Najar Abdul Musa, where he was a a student at Southern Illinois University, that basically pulled me back into the studio and got me reengaged in art practice, and from there. I did, you know, I just did art and it wasn't, 
I always say that I, I had talent. I had, a, had talent since the age of five in creating, but it wasn't until my, I would say like my mid twenties that I really developed a passion and started to really, you know, create more work and seek opportunities to show that work. And some of the first places were in Memphis, Tennessee, which was the big city close to where I grew up at. In 2005, Satiria and I, my wife of 28 years, decided to to make a go at art to see if we could do it, you know, for me to do it full time. And that's when we moved to Atlanta. And from there, you know, I just popped around from doing shows, uh, pop-up shows and festivals and uh, getting picked up by a gallery out of Chicago and really just trying to figure it out. And that was basically how my career as an artist began. I mean, I, I showed at coffee houses back in the day, did a couple festivals back in the day, but it was never, uh, it was more local to where I was from. But, you know, thankfully, you know, I ran into some individuals that, that really helped me, particularly artists. Like once I moved to Atlanta, I ran into a number of artists that gave me some some ideas of where, you know, quality shows would be based on the kind of work that I was producing, that they've had success at. And that's when I started to do shows and travel to like places like Chicago and down to South Florida. Uh, the first part of the year, there's a ton of festivals there. And even do festivals here in Atlanta. The first festival, the first show that I actually did was Underground Atlanta. I think they called it Heritage Art Festival, uh, and that would have been in in 2005. So that's that's kind of how my journey began. So it's Black History Month, a time to elevate prominent figures in African American life and culture. Why do you highlight? unsung heroes in your work rather than recognizable faces so i want to i want to be different i think as a a body of artists you know i mean popular figures is is an easier thing to do and i think i know we got stories that are that need to be told like stories that we're i always you know i often say stories untold or stories forgotten there's so many people who have contributed who have um you know, laid foundations that gave up their life or, or fought against a number of different challenges and struggles or just or just existed and that needed to be that needs to be recognized. And I think it's incumbent upon, you know, myself, you know, to lend my creative energies to helping to tell and frame those stories. And so that's why that's why I like to do the unsung, because, I mean, you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of people don't necessarily give the due to just it the everyday person that's actually out doing the work, you know, for every leader. I mean, there's tens or hundreds of people who the leader leans on to actually implement anything. And so like those stories are important too. like perfect example for me would be the story of Gullah Jack, you know, Gullah Jack Denmark, BC was the spearhead of what was going to be the 1822 slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina. But Gullah Jack was his right hand. He was his confidant. The same thing with when I do a story of Claudette Colvin, you know, we all are grateful and familiar with the work uh, that Rosa Parks put in to the civil rights struggle and movement, but she wasn't the first. And so to be able to tell a story about a young girl who, you know, was 15 years old and refused to give up her seat because she saw an injustice, that was Claudette Colvin, you know? And so I did this piece entitled Before Rosa, and it's to tell Claudette's story or stories like Henrietta Lacks. Uh, and the Gila cell or, you know, and so there's, there's a number of different stories. And I think, you know, that's, that's my role. And those are the things that really kind of interest me. How can I lend my, my, my energy and, and my love for our culture 
to help tell these stories, to, to educate and inform and inspire uh, people to to investigate more on how we've contributed to this society. So that's why that's why I choose to do it. So this current exhibition is titled "Leaving Mississippi," and you mentioned earlier Memphis was the closest big city to where you grew up, and that was in Arkansas. Why the title Leaving Mississippi? So for a couple reasons. One, I grew up in Bible, Arkansas, but it was Mississippi County, Arkansas, one. Oh. Uh, two, a muse in my body of work, basically since I started my professional career, has always been Robert Johnson and the, the story of the crossroads. The famous blues musician from the 20s and 30s and folklore has it. He sold his soul to be the baddest guitar player ever. <laughs> but, you know, but he was from he was from Mississippi and the crossroads that's always referenced. And, you know, when, he, when when you reference Robert Johnson at the crossroads is an hour and a half of where I grew up at in Mississippi, Highway 61 and 49 meet. And I think and, and it's also a play on the challenges that we have had as people of color in this country. And for me, Mississippi is a great metaphor for those challenges. So it's kind of threefold. Absolutely. You have a piece titled, This is My Baldwin. James Baldwin figures prominently in your work. Would you talk about what the writer means to you? Well, Baldwin was a, was a fighter, you know, I mean, he, and he, the, the thing, the beauty I love about Baldwin is he would, you know, he could challenge and he was so, you know, intellectual and smart and uh, had a command of the, of the language that I find that intoxicating because I have those thoughts in my head, but I'm a visual artist and not a writer. And so like, I can't, I can't speak to the things that he spoke to, but he, you know, he, he basically spoke for me, you know, he speaks for me continuously. And the reason why I wanted to do that Baldwin, in spite of the fact that I typically don't do a lot of, you know, popular figures, because one, you know, Baldwin is a, you know, has become a cultural icon. I started to listen to a number of his uh, lectures and debates. Also, I'm kind of, you know, vibing off like my contemporaries, like a lot of my contemporaries, you know, a lot of people doing Baldwin. And so I want to be on record. I wanted to be on record paying homage to this uh this icon of a figure to our culture and so i was like well let me let me show y'all what i can do with Baldwin." and so that's that's why i titled it the way that i did it's me giving Baldwin his flowers but also putting my work in conversation with uh or just the position of a number of my contemporaries that's doing their version of a Baldwin. so that's what it comes from i love your description of mississippi as a metaphor certainly in that context, the importance of leaving all of the pain and oppression and also recognizing the beauty of gifts like the birth of the blues there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with artist Naji Dorsey. His new exhibition, Leaving Mississippi, is on view at the Black Art in America Gallery. I was hoping you would comment on the role of artists in social justice movements. 
ah, man, when you ask that question, I'm reminded of what Nina Simone said. He said that the, um, you know, the artist is supposed to reflect the times. And I guess throughout history, you know, the artists have always been the truth sayers or the truth tellers for what's going on. And the artists are often, you know, the first to, to be judged and, and, and reprimanded and, and, you know, in some countries historically for, cause they would speak out. When you think about the role of music and some of the musicians and some of the visual artists and how, and the role that they played in civil rights. I was recent, recently watching a documentary on Aretha Franklin, not a documentary, but a movie on Aretha Franklin. And I didn't realize how much of a role that she played, you know, with King and, and, and everything that took place during that whole civil rights movement. And I think about George Hunt, you know, in Memphis. George Hunt was actually my first, I would say my first inspiration. George Hunt was a, I would say the most well-known African-American artist in, in Memphis. He did all the Memphis and May posters, a tremendous, tremendous collage artist. I think of like here, most people will probably be familiar with like Benny Andrews and Romeo Bearden. His technical application of, of mixed media is very akin to what Benny Andrews would do, but his, his muse was always music and, and Southern culture. But he was my earliest influence and he was close to, you know, the movement that was going play, going on in, in the sixties. Like when they had, when Dr. King's last speech, you know, to the, to the sanitation workers, George Hunt was there and he was close. He was so close that when King was assassinated, George Hunt was actually one of the pallbearers that took him, took his body onto the airplane, you know, and he would always like, he was the first artist. Like right now I'm a man is, is really popular in some visual culture in terms of people, you know, using it. And it was originally, I think a bill, um, Ernest Weathers, a photograph of the sanitation workers, but he was the first visual artist that I knew that used um, a man in his work and he used it throughout his lifetime. And unfortunately, we lost him in the beginning of the pandemic, but he was a tremendous influence on my work. So, but I'm also thinking about like Faith Ringo, a phenomenal quote maker. If you look at her whole body of work going all the way back to the 60s, she's always used her art to speak to, you know, personal injustices that she was, that she would encounter, but also injustices that was just taking place as a whole systematically for black people. I think about Frank Frazier, who's a good friend of mine, and we named one of the galleries out there. He's always done the same. And so for me, I follow in a tradition of those artists who lend their voice uh, to bring attention to some of the things that's going on in our community, both historically and in the contemporary. We have to Art has to be more than just a commercial endeavor. Like right now, I mean, it's extremely hot. You know, museums are collecting it. You know, you got flippers that's buying it. You got so many people coming into the space looking to acquire your work. Sometimes we can lose that substantive nature that being conscious of what's going on around us and using our art and our voice to bring attention to certain social injustices. I don't think that we take advantage of that enough. And I like to, that's not all I do, but it's part of the balance that I, you know, have for myself and saying that, Hey, yeah, I do these, you know, these pretty pictures of interior scenes or families or black love and things of that nature. But I'm also conscious of the things of the environment that I live in and the country that I live in and from time to time, I'll create work that speaks to some of these injustices. And I think great examples of that in the contemporary sense is if you look at the work that I did on the poor people's campaign where I center children as the reference point for having a broader discussion about how we live in plain sight of a uh, 
uh, of environmental racism and injustice and how black and brown communities around and, and poor whites around the country are typically the ones that have that's living around these factories and refineries and landfills and so on and so forth and the impact that it's having on our health. Um, so that's just that's that's kind of how I see it. You have an exhibition coming up right after leaving Mississippi closes. Her voice sings, which is a black women's art focused show. Please tell us about this exhibition and a bit about the artists involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, w- I would like to mention that it's actually a duo show that's running, Her Voice Scenes, which will be featuring the work of over 12 women artists. Uh, many are based here in Atlanta, but uh, several are also nationally acclaimed artists that we've invited to participate. And then the other show that's running is that will run at the time, and that's going to be February the 16th through March 25th, is titled If the Patchwork, if the Patchwork Could Talk. And this piece is actually a community quote uh, spearheaded by Marvell Michelle, who actually lives here in East Point, where she gathered the stories of 20 women who have suffered from heart attack, stroke, and heart disease and survived it and taken their stories and, and placed those words within the, in the framework of a quote. We also have an audio component of them talking about, you know, surviving it and, and importance of health and some of the things that they went through. And so we just want to bring attention to not only the health issues concerning women, but also to celebrate on the, on the visual art side where her voice sings the art that's created by women today. And a number of these are my colleagues. These are people that we work with in, you know, over, over the years, like Lillian Blades, you've got Sachi Rom, who's uh, art instructor, uh, at one of the local schools here and also a very talented artist. We've got Winter Bell, who's the youngest of the of the women artists that's in the show. Winter actually graduated from SCAD and works with and works here at Baya. We first collected her work as a family about a year and a half ago. Now she's part of the team. And and on the national uh front, we've got Daphne Arthur, who's a graduate from Yale. We've got a beautiful piece from her, Wendy, uh, I think it's Kirkpatrick, who's out of um Columbus, Ohio, uh, exceptional bookmaker and, and, and many others it's on the cuffs of, it's going to open during black history month and it's going to run through women's history month. And it's just a matter of us saying, you know, we see you, we value you and we want more people to be exposed to the work that you're doing. And it's, a, it's no better time to celebrate. Well, it's always time to celebrate women, but particularly during women's history month, we wanted to, you know, do something here at Bayou that was going to be special. And we've got programming that month where we have an, uh, one of the collectors, Ashley Lee, who's a, a collector of emerging artists and building a very strong collection based here in Atlanta. She's uh, having a collectors talk and then we've got some other programming throughout the entire month. So we want to make it special for people to come to Baya and, and help us celebrate the, these very talented and, and stories of women that are exceptional. Artist Naji Dorsey, leaving Mississippi is on view at the Black Art in America Gallery through February 11th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series Speaking of Comedy today features Atlanta comedian Ty Colgate, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
you love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy, where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name is Ty Colgate, and I'm an Atlanta-based comedian. And I remember... I didn't even know what a stand-up comedian was. I'd watch Late Night with my mom, and I was always so impressed with, like, the power the host would have over the audience. Like, there was something that, like, being funny did for the people around you. And when I'd go visit uh, my dad on the weekends, he, he worked in car sales, and he had, like, a very quick wit. He was very fast in conversation, and I just remember being a kid and being, like, so jealous and enamored by that and just approaching him one time, and I was like, how do I get wit? Like, I just wanted to know how to be witty. I first started in comedy probably the same way that everyone did. You find, like, a local open mic, and you go there. The first one I ever did was in Orlando, Florida, at a place called Drunken Monkey. It was a coffee shop. I did that, I think I was, like, 21, so this is probably, like, 2017. Uh, but I was in college, so I didn't have the time to devote to stand-up comedy, so... I didn't really kick off heavy until I moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 2018 after I graduated and started at a place called Pizza Mike. Atlanta is just a brutal city to do comedy in. It has some of the most uh, aggressive and least receptive crowds a lot of times. However, you know, that could sound like a bad thing, but to me, it's always felt good to do it here because steel sharpens steel and you'll notice that with comics that you can tell are coming from a place where it is slightly easier to pull off the material that they're pulling off Atlanta is a city that demands realness and authenticity if you fail to bring that a lot of times you are going to struggle with Atlanta crowds My girlfriend accidentally made herself white. Um, she, she's supposed to be Puerto Rican and Jewish. Um, but, but for like the past three years, uh, my girlfriend, she's been using this banana skin lotion from South Korea. And a couple weeks ago, she Googled it because there's like no English on the whole bottle. And it turns out that it was a banana skin whitening cream. Yeah, for three years, she has been using a banana skin whitening cream. I'm embarrassed because I date her and even I didn't notice she stopped getting pulled over. (laughs) 
I, I think it's hilarious too because she only bought it because a bottle it had a cute cartoon banana on it and it smelled like candy, which I find hilarious because I never imagined racism would smell like yellow Laffy Taffy. That was like, the last thing I expected. The uh, uh, bit, uh, it did happen. Uh, my girlfriend, she accidentally whitened her skin because she usually has like a tanner complexion. But she she loves artificial banana a lot. So she saw this cream. It, it's just the way to describe it in the joke. Bright yellow bottle, cartoon banana. She buys it. She uses it for a while. And I think the way she actually figured out that it was a skin whitening cream was she tried to buy it online to replace it because there's no English in the bottle. So she like Googled it. But obviously, when you go to the website, it did have some English. And it is 100% used for whitening your skin, which she had done for too long. I, I think at least two years it took her to get through that bottle. So that's where that joke comes from. Well, one of my first challenges getting into the industry was when I first started, and I guess it was way too early to say uh, working in the industry because I was just an open micer. I was just going out and just going anywhere that would let me get up. Uh, the first obstacle was that I worked at the Weather Channel, and my shift, it was a live television network, so the shift I had was just way too late. I worked noon until 9 at night, sometimes later, and it just always guaranteed that I was going last at every open mic. I, I a lot of times would sneak out the back door at like 8.15 just so I'd have a little bit of a head start to get to a mic to actually have like hopefully some audience. I got so desperate at one point, I made a whole spreadsheet, listed every open mic in the Atlanta area and put how many miles it was from the Weather Channel so I knew every day what was the mic I could get to the fastest so I could actually test things out. I personally love having the crowd be part of my set. I, I think crowd work is a great way to, one, find a new angle on a joke. I mean, there, there's a certain chaos to it. I think crowd work kind of breeds like a certain kind of like jazziness to your set because people can see now it's like oh you're not just playing sheet music like you have the ability to kind of improvise you can go places with it you're not just a you're not just some guy that can write something funny you're just a funny guy there could be a wrong amount i don't think you want to have the crowd like direct the whole thing uh because at some point the material is going to suffer but i do think having a crowd a part of my set keeps it better Honesty and authenticity is what would inspire my comedic voice the most. Because like, if what you're saying doesn't even sound true to you, if it doesn't resonate with you, then it has no hope of resonating with anyone. Because it just goes back to that classic saying, you know, it's so. F it's funny because it's true. And for something to be true, it has to truly be like your point of view. It has to be something inside of you that is like making you make this observation or making you feel this way. That's how you connect with people and, you know, hopefully make them laugh. I mean, it doesn't work every single time, but when it does, it usually comes from a place of honesty. I have a lot of shows coming up in February, but if you want like a more consistent one that I'm at pretty often, I produce a show, a weekly show every Saturday 
at 8 p.m. at Joystick Game Bar. I'm there most Saturdays. And that's why I usually test out a lot of my more showcase material, more showy stuff, not open mic uh, material. Um, I do have a lot of dates coming up that are going to be up and down the East Coast. Uh, but if you would like to see those, you can find that on any of my social media channels at Ty Colgate. T-Y Colgate, just like the toothpaste. Comedian Ty Colgate and our series, Speaking of Comedy. More information about Colgate, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. Coming up, Actors Express takes on the existential question of to go or not to go with their new production of the musical You're in Town. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Have you ever gone to the bathroom al fresco? And did that relatively commonplace act start a social and political revolution that upended your entire world and brought down a corporate empire? If so... You might be living in the dystopian future predicted by Urine Town, the hilarious musical that first opened to wide acclaim on Broadway in 2001. A new production of Urine Town is opening February 4th at Actors Express and includes student actors from Oglethorpe University among its professional cast. Joining me now via Zoom is the director of the show and Actors Express Artistic Director Freddie Ashley, along with actor Russell Scott, who will play the role of Bobby Strong. Freddie Russell, welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having us, Lois. Great to be here. Now, if our listeners have not heard of the musical You're in Town, and this being an audio medium, they may be extending the benefit of the doubt about the spelling of the name. But yes, this musical is all about people urinating, and it's as Body and ridiculous as it sounds. Freddie, will you give us a synopsis of the play? Yes, it, it takes place in a future in which a drought has forced everyone to have highly regulated water usage, which of course includes how they go to the bathroom. And a giant corporation uh, controls uh, the uh, the public urinals, which are the only place it's permitted for people to go answer nature's call. And they are in cahoots with the government to keep the prices really high and uh, keep the people um, under their grip. And then a young revolutionary named Bobby Strong comes along and uh, leads the poor in an uprising so that they can assert their, their freedom to uh, pee freely, as they say, wherever they want and with whomever <laughs> they want. 
Okay, Bobby Strong, that's your character, Russell. Please tell us more about Bobby and how you connect with this role. Yes, yes. So, so Bobby is a bright-eyed revolutionary, and I think the best way to describe Bobby is a dreamer. He dreams of a better day, of a better future, and many times throughout the beginning of the show, you will hear uh, several characters that tell Bobby to to keep his head out of the clouds. Uh, so as he goes through life, Bobby just always has his, his head in the clouds, looking out at what could possibly be and, and what he might be able to achieve. And uh, I just, he's very passionate, a very passionate character, uh, almost too passionate, passionate to a fault. So how were you directed to connect with this role? So I think for Bobby, I think when he believes in something, he is going to pursue it 100%. And he's going to follow what, whatever that belief is, whatever that passion is. And I think that's something that, that I really connect to at, with the character. Hmm. Now, Bobby Strong, although a likable upbeat every man is a tool for the wicked corporation through most of the show. Why does he change his perspective? So Bobby actually has a, a particularly dramatic event that happens to him um, near the beginning of the show. Uh, he actually loses his father due to the corporation and he actually meets Hope Cladwell and Hope teaches him to follow his heart. Um, that's one of their, their duets together. Darkness surrounds you and you lose your way. You have your own compass. It turns night to day. And it's even with you before you depart. Be still. Hear it beating. It's leading you. Follow your heart. Follow my heart. To where? To wherever your heart tells you to go. Even there? Even to the clouds, if that's what your heart commands. What's it saying now? I don't know. I don't know how to listen to my heart. You have to listen carefully. And that is the pivotal moment in the show where Bobby decides that he's going to start a revolution and that he is going to turn on the UGC, you're in good company, and, and, and start a revolt. Hmm. Now, although you're in town is a parade of gags from start to finish, today it seems there's some dark resonance in the story it tells. Uh, you could have been talking a, about California initially in, in the synopsis, and here... We know many parts of the world will see serious water shortages in years to come because of climate change. Many already do. Freddie, you have said that you love this show for the laughter and the hilarity, the satire, the music, but there are some serious themes as well. What can we learn from Urinetown? 
Well, as with any good satire, it really holds up a mirror to where we are uh, ourselves. And um, it also, I think, becomes relevant in new ways as time goes on, uh, which is why the show was a huge hit when it premiered just over 20 years ago and how it has managed to maintain this robust life and become really a modern classic of musical theaters produced quite frequently. And I think that, yes, there are those uh, potential warnings about the the use of resources and, and how we manage uh, that. But I think that the the larger satire is really sort of poking at the systems we have in place to keep the poor um, where they are and the the influence of corporate entanglement with government to serve those at the top of the of the food chain as it were and uh, to keep those who are uh, at the bottom in check and i think that that is something that the play deals with in all kinds of ways even though it does sort of flip that on its head as you mentioned earlier with the social breakdown that happens when all of this is upended. And so I think that, you know, the the play is operating on a number of different levels. And I think more than trying to necessarily teach us something, get us to kind of look at how we understand it from our present worldview and our current circumstances. And that will change year to year as the world changes around it. Mm, indeed. It seems the greatest target for satire here and their comments on morality is the corporate greed and how you're in good company capitalizes on disaster and scarcity. That would never happen in real life, though. (laughs) I was going to ask... Do you see any parallels to other events in our world today? Well, I think uh, (laughs) I should probably be circumspect in my answer on that, shouldn't I? Probably. Um, But I do think that the condition of that, of government being embedded with corporate America and with uh, the wealthy elite doing everything they can to maintain their position at the expense of everyone else, is I think that that is the big thing that the play is poking at, and it's it's a pretty easy target, unfortunately, because it's a it's a target that has presented itself, I think, you know, since time immemorial, and is especially true in our world today. And so, you know, while yes, the the when the rebels take over, the social order breaks down, but let's not forget how miserable it was for them prior to that. So it's it's a complex satire, and it it really gets us, I think, to wrestle with those questions rather than maybe come out with a particular conclusion about them. The musical is set in an unspecified, not-so-distant future, and given that it premiered 22 years ago, that future could well be now. I'm wondering how the original production looked in terms of style, set decoration, and costumes. And does Actors Express follow that original aesthetic or take it in a new direction? Well, I I saw it on Broadway back in, I think, 2003. 
And I remember it being a lot of um, like scaffolding and very sort of industrial. You know, we have taken our own approach with this production. The physical production is inspired by uh, brutalist architecture, which came uh, about in England and then really raged through Europe and the States in the 50s and 60s after the Second World War and is utilitarian and imposing and uh, meant to uh, evoke authority. And we looked at some social parallels between how that architectural style related to its social circumstances and how that translates into something futuristic, but then also looked at well, what else uh, was happening um, at that time, because brutalism itself was you know, futuristic in a way. And so we have this sort of wide range of influences that kind of spun out from that central initial impulse. And so there are a lot of 60s-inspired clothes in the show, but also uh, with a futuristic spin. There are even some nods because of the play's Brechtian structure. We went back to some of those sort of older Brechtian ideas. Uh, we even went a little further back and looked at the scenic design work of Joseph Svoboda and, in and included some of uh, the way he used lines in his scenic designs in, in, in Germany and kind of came up with a design that has a sort of sense of scale and scope and foreboding but also is something that is interesting and unexpected. Hmm. I think Brecht would have approved of this play. Oh, I sure hope so. I think so, too. This production marks a return to a very successful collaboration Actors Express undertook with Oglethorpe University theater students last year, a production of Heather's The Musical, featured a cast partially made up of student actors. Would you tell us how the students made that show shine and about Actors Express teaming up again? Yeah, well, with a show like Heather's, you know, with, with a cast full of young characters, having as many young people in the cast just was a natural fit. And we had such a good time working together that we decided that we would like to make this partnership ongoing and find productions that would really work for their students and their um, where they are with their training and experience and give them the opportunity to work with professional guest artists. There's this cool energy that kind of emerges in the process because you have the fresh, young, exuberant energy of the students paired with the relatively uh, you know, more experience of the professional actors. And so at each, I think, both groups have a lot to share with each other and learn from each other. And that creates an interesting energy in the, in the room. And you know, I said earlier in the process that I, I don't want to think of it as a hierarchical structure. We're all collaborators and colleagues in this process, and we all have something unique to share. And I have just as much to learn from the students as they have to learn from us. So I think that spirit kind of keeps the collaboration uh, exciting and, and fruitful. Mm, great attitude. You've got music director Ashley Prince for this show, who also worked on the music for last summer's musical Lizzie, 
a rock opera about Lizzie Borden, another unapologetically strange and sensational show. What is a standout song from You're in Town and why? Oh, gosh, there are so many great songs. I mean, it really is such a tuneful show. I think for me, I, I love the song Privilege to Pee early in Act One. Um, <laughs> when I saw it on Broadway with Carolee Carmelo, I had never heard a human being belt notes so high in my life. Times are hard, our cash is tight, you've got the right, I've heard it all before. Just this once is once too much, because once they've once, don't want to once, once more. I run the only toilet in this part of town, you see. So if you gotta go, you got to go through me. It's a privilege to be. Water's worth its weight in gold these days. No more bathrooms like in olden days. And found it thrilling. And I have to say that as performed by Megan Hill in our production, it is equally thrilling. And she is belting just as high as Carolyn Carmelo. And it's a great song. It's a showstopper. Director Freddie Ashley and actor Russell Scott, you're in town, is on stage at Actors Express beginning tomorrow, February 4th, and running through February 19th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The term Great American Songbook is used to describe enduring standards and popular songs played and sung repeatedly by multiple generations. Pianist and singer Michael Feinstein is known as the ambassador of the Great American Songbook, and he'll perform in Atlanta Sunday night at the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. Feinstein's concert is presented by Niranana the nonprofit cultural event series with roots in Jewish culture and traditions. Jazz pianist Joe Alterman is the executive director of Neuronina. Not only is Michael Feinstein one of the great exemplars of the Great American Songbook, which is to me one of the pinnacles of human thought, intelligence, and cleverness, but he's someone who has really lived the songbook. He was very close with Ira Gershwin and many of the other composers of that songbook, which is also, in many ways, the Jewish American Songbook. And he's a bridge from those people in that era to these people today. A big part of our mission at Naranana has been defining the Jewish part of music by the story about the music and not necessarily by its melody. Being that Michael Feinstein is not only a brilliant musician, but also a brilliant mind and thinker, he will bring an interesting, fascinating, eye-opening, and entertaining take on what is Jewish music and what is the Jewish American songbook. But you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy this show. If you like good music, you'll love this show. And if you love learning a little bit about music, you'll love it too. More information about Michael Feinstein's concert is on the website, Naramina Art. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics, 
H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. You know, I like to state that sometimes females who are great musicians don't get the respect that they would if they were a man. And that's just a fact. That's worse than racism. And sometimes we're deadly. I'm talking about a young lady who got her recognition, but not as much as she should have because she was struggling to get what she got. Her name is Emily Rembler. She passed away in 1990, just before I was scheduled to meet her and interview her. She passed away, I'm sorry to say. But she left a lot of music here for us to uh, remember her by. Thank goodness for the recording industry. She started out on piano when she was young, and she lived a long time in New York. She hung out with all the heavyweights who were in that area. She had six albums out when I last talked to her, but the one I enjoyed the most was one called East to West. It was a tribute to Wes Montgomery, who was one of her idols. Hank Jones was on piano, Buster Williams on bass, and Marvin Sweetie Smith on drums. Y'all listen to it. She's a great pianist, but she's a better guitar player. That's where her heart was. She liked Eric Clapton and Ravi Shankar. Now, you say Ravi Shankar, he's not a guitar player, no, but she liked him because she loved music. She listened to all forms. She says she hated jazz when she first heard it. And that's interesting. She hated jazz when she first heard it. She didn't understand what they were doing. She thought it was just a bunch of notes that these musicians were throwing together and making noise. But she started listening with an open mind and got to know the works of Charlie Christian, a great guitarist, Kenny Burrell, John Coltrane, he's not a guitarist, but she liked Coltrane. She liked Miles, Paul Desmond, loved them all. And if you listen to her statements in music, you can hear their influence coming out of her, especially the West Montgomery influence. She never got away from that. Although, before she passed away, she had developed a style and a sound that was definitely Emily Remler. But she had to have influences just like all of us do. If we're going to play an instrument, you have to listen to someone. Classical musicians listen to Bach, Mozart, and so forth. Jazz musicians to listen to Miles, Coltrane, Charlie Parker. Having said all that, Lois, why don't we listen to something by her right now, softly as in a morning sunrise? W.A.B.E.'s H. Johnson and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured jazz guitarist Emily Remler. 
you can hear the full-length version of Softly as in a Morning Sunrise on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10, and do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8, right here on 90.1. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Monday at 11 a.m., Travel expert Rick Steves joins us for his monthly travel tip. Plus, China Forbes, a pink martini stops by ahead of the band's upcoming performance at the Eastern. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 